Good morning. One of the more disturbing things I see on television from time to time are the news stories that follow up natural disasters, where you see families coming back to what's left of their home after a fire has swept through or tornadoes run through, and they're, they're picking through the rubble, trying to carefully discern if anything can be saved. And it's, it's a disheartening thing to see as you try to put yourself in their position and, and what would it be like to, you know, to lose everything in your home, including your home. Uh, it's a really significant question. What can be saved? It, it's a haunting question. In relationships, in broken systems, in cycles of greed, what, what can be saved? Too often, I think, when we find ourselves in real difficult places and we're tempted to ask this question, uh, we give up a little too easily. It, it may be because we've become a little cynical, maybe jaded, hard to believe that anything can be saved, hard to believe that anything can be redeemed. Things seem so out of hand. The culture is so divided. There's so much anger and hatred. Um, is it possible for anything to be saved from this? My sense is, though, if the people of God lose hope for the redemption of the world, what chance does the world have? If the people of God refuse to act on the redemptive promises of God, who will? When we are wronged, if we can only see our own pain, rather than the need for redemption that lies at the heart of the injury, how will we ever be agents of reconciliation? I think Joseph, from the Old Testament story in Genesis, is an example for us in this area. This is Genesis 50, starting in verse 15, a later part of the story. Genesis 50, 5, 0, 15. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crimes of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and for your little ones. In this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. So this event, this little encapsulated piece of Joseph's story, happens 17 years after the family moves to Egypt. I mean, you know the story, the broad outline of Joseph's story. Joseph's brothers 
sold Joseph into slavery many years before. They were jealous of Joseph's abilities. And to be fair, Joseph was a little arrogant and flaunted the fact that he was his father's favorite. Uh, but he was young, right? And the brothers, jealous of their father's attention to Joseph, decide they just want to kill him outright. But others decide, because there's a whole bunch of brothers, that we'll just spare him death and sell him into slavery. But they tell dad that Joseph is dead. And so Jacob the father mourns the death of his son, and at least temporarily Joseph is written out of the family history. And so Jacob mourns Joseph. Enough to make any son bitter, right? But then the hand of God moves, and Joseph follows a path of triumph and tragedy and trial, all the melodrama of a soap opera. I mean, at the end of the episode, however, he is on the top of the heap, second in power, in power to Pharaoh himself, saving the nation and his own family from starvation. You remember how the brothers have to come back from Egypt, come back to Egypt from Canaan for food, how they have strange encounters with Joseph before he actually reveals his identity to them. Joseph doesn't exact revenge, but saves his family and makes them prosperous. But you know, the guilt of these brothers never allows them to rest. They're always wondering when the other shoe might drop. Seventeen years pass after that. Seventeen years, think about that. Seventeen years with living with this measure of dread, if you will. Living with the fact that the brother you harmed, the brother you almost killed, the brother you sold into slavery now holds your life in his hands. This must have been a burden for those brothers. But it was a self-imposed burden. And then Jacob the father dies. And this, open olds, this opens old wounds. Now, in case you're suspicious as to why this opens old wounds, remember this family story. Jacob had a brother Esau, when their father was about to die, Jacob steals Esau's birthright. And so there's bitterness. And the scriptures tell us that Esau planned to kill his brother Jacob. Jacob's the father now in this story. Esau plans to kill Jacob, but he wants to wait until their father had died because he doesn't want to cause pain to his father by killing off his brother. And so that's a part of the family story, okay? Jacob knows this part of the story. Jacob, as a younger man, was wise enough to know that Esau was plotting this, and he gets out of town before his father dies. Makes sense. Gets out of there as quickly as possible. So this is all part of the story. So now a generation later, we have these 17 brothers who are expecting the same thing. When dad, Jacob, dies now, that's when Joseph is going to squash us like bugs. And that's what they're expecting. This is what typifies the brothers' thoughts. It, typis, it typifies an outlook, a perspective on life, a worldview that requires them to mistrust forgiveness, to believe that it's only right to try to get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
and like all the Egyptians around them. These brothers just assumed that Joseph was like them and would press his advantage when given the opportunity and would eventually get the revenge that he was entitled to. And so because that's how these brothers look at the world, they've got to cook up this false story, this fake deathbed wish, hoping to trick Joseph one more time into being lenient. Joseph, as your dad was dying, it was his dying wish that you be nice to us. How self-serving. I think you can read a good bit into this little plan of theirs. I mean, these brothers will do about anything to avoid the, re the revenge that they know and believe is coming and that they know they deserve. It makes you wonder what other actions they would stoop to given the chance to protect themselves. Take advantage of Joseph's kids, manipulate the level of their need in order to get more, create other false narratives to manipulate Joseph's emotions. The problem in all of this is they don't really understand or know Joseph. Even after all these years, they still have got the truth of the matter wrong, but everything is colored by the way they look at the world. When they actually talk to Joseph, Joseph responds to their requests simply and directly. Don't be afraid. We all know you're afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm not your judge. God used your actions for good. And then we're told he speaks kindly to them. This response is totally unexpected by the brothers. Uh, they expect to pay for their crimes. Joseph looks past their crimes to see what God was doing and has done and leaves it all in God's hands. Joseph sees the redemptive work of God. God at work to save him. God at work to save his family. God at work to save Egypt. God at work to preserve Israel for himself. In fact, Joseph is an example of redemption for us, taking what is broken and bringing salvation and life. And hearing Joseph's story, I'm wondering about which perspective we view the world from. Do you and I view the world through the redemptive eyes of God or through the broken expectations of a society bent on revenge. Clearly, I'm making the case that we ought to be men and women of forgiveness who look at the world through the redemptive eyes of God, always seeking to mend what is broken and redeem that which is lost. But I have to confess, as soon as I begin proclaiming that message, there is a danger there is a, a potential for abuse in this very message. The minute we start to pursue redemption and start offering forgiveness, there's the possibility of manipulation. Because it's simple for some self-centered folks to take the message of forgiveness and redemption and make of it an expectation of others 
towards them, ripe for manipulation by offenders and predators. It goes like this. After offending someone, the offender says, well, well, you're Christian, so you have to forgive me. You're not allowed to seek revenge. You're not allowed to repay evil with evil. You have no way to make me accountable for what I did wrong, so just forget what I did and get over it. The danger is in the half-truths that are in those kinds of words. It's true that we must forgive others. It is not true that we're not able to hold others accountable for their actions. It's true that we are not allowed to seek revenge. Revenge belongs to God, after all. But it is not true that we have to submit to those who would harm us, especially those that would harm us again. It is true that we must pray for and seek the good of our enemies. But it is not true that we have to say what they have done doesn't matter. The danger in this message is obvious when offenders use it to try to get victims to ignore their wounds or to get over their injuries more quickly or to keep victims from seeking appropriate protection or justice. I've seen this kind of thing on more than one occasion. An unfaithful husband is forgiven by his wife and together they begin to work towards reconciliation again. And in a few months, the husband complains, she always wants to know where I am. It's like she doesn't trust me anymore. I thought she forgave me. Well, she did forgive you. And the evidence of that is she is still with you. But you haven't earned the trust back yet. Because trust isn't automatic, and when you demand trust rather than earning trust, you prove again that you are clueless and probably don't deserve the trust to begin with. When those who are the offenders demand forgiveness from victims, the whole message is twisted and perverted. This is a significant part of race relations in our country today. Many white folks in the country today had nothing to do personally with the racism that marked our past. But many of our forefathers did. And if you take a broad view, our white European ancestors did irreparable harm to many populations in the Americas. And it is appropriate for us to repent of the sins of our forefathers. And this must be done in humility and sincerity. But when white folks say to victims of racism, just get over it, or, or you have to forget it and forgive, while refusing to take a sincere and humble look at how our national systems might still disadvantage minority populations, that's just like saying, what happened to you doesn't matter. That's all in the past. Get over it. But it does matter, and it shapes the present in the same way that it distorts the past. So in the midst of even the racial tensions of our day, how do we as Christians look at the world through redemptive eyes? How do we look through the redemptive eyes of our Father in heaven? 
How do we embrace the world in the manner of a redeeming Jesus? How do we join in the redemptive work of mending what has been broken? I think first of all, you must love others, both victims and aggressors alike. But you must especially embrace the wounded, the injured, and the oppressed. This is the lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? When, when we read the, or hear the story of the Good Samaritan, it's a story of action. We are the people who embrace the hurting. We stand with the marginalized. That's who Jesus calls us to be. The second thing is, not only do we express love, love always reaches out in tangible action. The Good Samaritan not only has pity on the wounded traveler, he binds the wounds, he takes the traveler to an inn, he pays for his room and his care, he finances the recovery because he loves the wounded neighbor. Don't forget for a second that the Good Samaritan who's caring for the injured individual had nothing to do with the injuries or the wounds. Nothing to do at all. But because of the character and nature of his heart, his love reaches out in action as a redemptive force in the world. The Good Samaritan is defined by his love for others, for his desire to make a difference, to demonstrate compassion. And what was true of him ought to be true of us as well. When we look at the brokenness of our world, at the pain and injury of the past, we not only stand with the broken and abused, we act to make a difference. Having, having a redemptive outlook, a redemptive perspective, is always looking for how things can be restored, what can be saved, how might this situation change for the better, what's possible given the amazing grace of God. What might we achieve if we could look with the redemptive eyes of the Father at the brokenness around us? The foundation for living this way, of course, is remembering continually how gracious God has been to me, right? How patient has, been God, has God been with you? How many chances have you been given? How much forgiveness have you received? How many times have you needed to start over? Are you perfect yet? Or is God still extending grace to you moment by moment? We know all these things are true. And so the foundation of this desire to enter into the redemptive perspective of the Father and to extend the grace to others is rooted in the grace that we ourselves have received. If we're in such need of grace, shouldn't we be the most gracious people of all? But are we really all that gracious? I wish I could just stop there. But the problem is, we have to contend with Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And even though this call to be gracious is hard enough, we have to deal with Jesus' words at face value. And you know what they are. You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 43, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. How tough is that? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So rather than looking to condemn, rather than looking to get revenge, rather than looking for justice on my terms, I ask the Father to help me see in this situation, in this time, in this perplexing circumstance, what can be redeemed. I have to look for ways to participate with the Father in restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. You might think that when we look at Joseph's story that it isn't fair that the brothers never really paid for their crimes. Oh, but they did. For 17 years, they have endured knowing that their lives were in Joseph's hands. 17 years later, they're still lying and trying to protect themselves. They can't trust Joseph to forgive them because they know themselves that they are untrustworthy people. And the price of the untrustworthy always is you can't trust anybody else because you assume everyone will be like you. It's the same price that liars and thieves pay. However, Joseph refuses to let the injustice, the crimes committed against him, to define him. Somehow, by God's grace, he rises above it and looks for the redemption of God in the trials he's faced. And he found plenty to give thanks for. In interpreting his story graciously, Joseph offers them a chance to redeem their story. You heard his words. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. Whether they ever decide to trust Joseph or not, we don't know. But I am reminded of what Paul has to say. This is what Paul says about the way we should look at the world around us and the people around us. This is 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. This is verse 9. We remember that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. He has entrusted this message, this process of reconciliation to you and to me, to us. He goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we should always be asking the question as we look around us, what can be redeemed? 
how might we enable the reconciliation process in those that are around us? How might we create space for others to find their redemption? I think it starts with Joseph, Joseph's words. Am I God? No, we are not judges. That's not our role. That's the Holy Spirit's role, right? On that day, it will be the role of the Messiah, the wounded lamb who returns in glory. But that's not our role. That's not our job. Do your own job, right? You are ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. You are drawing the world to Christ by the forgiving grace of God. We do not seek revenge. Like Jesus, who came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world, John 3, 17. We're searching, looking diligently for everything that can be redeemed. Embracing those things for the cause of Christ. I, I would think that would be a prayer agenda for us. Lord, in my circle of relationships, what can be saved? What can be salvaged? When I sift through the rubble of the landscape around me, and friends, we know we have a scorched earth landscape right now. But that doesn't mean the opportunities for salvation and redemption and reconciliation don't also litter the landscape. Will we have the courage to rise above our own pain and ask God what He's doing in this? And will we allow him to put his grace and mercy in our hearts so that we can be the ministers of reconciliation that he calls us to be? We're going to sing a song in a moment. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Because this is not work for the faint of heart. This is work that's difficult and painful and uncomfortable. But it is the work of the kingdom of God. And unless we invite His Spirit to open our eyes so we can see the possibilities for redemption, open our eyes to be sensitive to the pain around us, and then give us the stamina to do the work, we'll wimp out on this. We'll find other things to value and we'll pass our time doing X, Y, or Z rather than doing the work that the Father has given us to do. So I invite you to pray and ask the Father how it is that you might enter into the work of redeeming that which is lost. Would you stand with me to pray? Father, this work is beyond us. But the Word tells us you've given it to us. And so we rely on your resources. We ask for a sensitivity to know where and when to speak, where and when to act, what those actions might be. Lord, help us. To do this well, we're going to have to surrender our own opinions. Some of us will have to crawl off of our soapboxes. Some of us, Lord, will have to edit our Facebook posts. Some of us will have to pray desperately to be able to see the world through your eyes, your redemptive 
eyes. To see through the eyes that wept over Jerusalem. Would you help us, Lord? We need you if we're going to pull this off at all. Jesus, we're asking in your name. Gracious God, bless these good people for the work to which you have called them. Pour out your spirit on them in new ways. Open their eyes that they may see the redemptive possibilities everywhere around them. And by your spirit, prod them into action. Give them wisdom to know how to act. That a lost world may find their way back to you. We pray this in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.